You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Psalm 17. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. They, na- they have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we are thankful for your word, and now we pray that you indeed would be our teacher, that you would show us yourself that we would learn from you, from your word, that the Lord Jesus might indeed be our vision, that we might become like him as we behold him. And we pray that by the power of the Spirit, you might do all these things for your name's sake. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. I spent the morning with a lot of you yesterday at the Singleness Seminar. It's so good to be with so many of you then and there. Uh, we're going to hopefully have all of those or all that audio of all three of those sessions posted to the podcast soon. Uh, so I'd encourage you, uh, if you are in this building or you are with us on Zoom or even if you are later this week listening to this uh, on the podcast, would you just consider listening to those? Uh, not because I think that I had particularly helpful things to say or something, but singleness is something that we ought to all have a good theology of and a good uh, just thinking through as we care and walk together as the family of God. Uh, Can I just also say, before we get going into Psalm 17, we haven't said this in a while, uh, but this whole masks thing and not saying thing just really stinks, doesn't it? And I think uh, like we're kind of used to it in some sense, and we don't want to just get up here and complain every week. Because uh, we can be thankful for the ways in which the Lord has allowed us to be together and uh, be edified through song and clapping and all of these other ways. But man, we are really, really, <laughs> just really looking forward to the day in which we can all sing very loudly again together. And if nothing else, I, I can't speak for Matt, but I'm sure and many of the other musicians that they 
can even worship the Lord even more uh, with their whole heart when they see and experience uh, you all responding in song, and just in the same way that I can preach better, I think, when I can see your faces and your smiles. So I do appreciate uh, nodding heads in <laughs> uh, affirmation from time to time. If, if uh, you might be tempted to, or you might tend towards smiling or even saying amen uh, during the sermon. I, I would appreciate uh, a nodding head or even a raised hand or something just to, to let me know that you're, you agree. Well, uh, have you ever noticed? Have you ever noticed? Oh, one more thing. Caveat off the top. This is the last week that we're going to spend uh, in the Psalms. We've spent three or four weeks, as is our now new tradition in between books of the Bible. Uh, so next week, starting next Sunday, we'll be in Acts chapter 1, I think 1 through 11. But if you want to go ahead and prepare for the book of Acts, we will have many, many, many months together in that undertaking. Well, in this last sermon in the Psalms together for a while, Psalm 17, uh, have you ever noticed that in just so many stories, whether they be in book form or TV show or movie form, uh, even stories that have no overt religious themes or morals, often that God or the mention of God shows up pretty frequently. There's a moment in just so many movies that God is mentioned, and it's not a weird thing at all. Do you know the moment I'm talking about? When, when most frequently, when a character is in some danger. There's a, uh, a moment of serious distress when they or someone close to them might die, or they are afraid that they might die. What do they do? They start praying to God for deliverance. And it isn't weird. It isn't weird to them or the characters surrounding them. It isn't weird to us as the viewers of the movie. Uh, it seems like, and it appears to be a pretty natural response, even though we might have not been given any indication that this character is religious. Danger seems like the right time to pray, though perhaps increasingly less true these days. There's an old World War II saying that says that there are no atheists in foxholes. This was a rephrasing of the World War I phrase, that there are no atheists in the trenches. Meaning, when these soldiers were in a place where it was seemingly luck, which determined if this artillery shell would hit this patch of dirt in which they were lying, or the patch of dirt just next to them, it was seemingly luck that would determine whether they would see the next day. All of these men would pray for something, or to something, higher than them to protect them because there was absolutely nothing that they could do to protect themselves. Some of us have been in situations like this, even some of you recently, a place of imminent danger, potential death, life and death was seemingly and completely out of your hands altogether. But these are actually moves that all of us make every day, and not just in moments of imminent life or death danger. We turn to something that we think will help us in a moment of crisis, in a moment of conflict, in a moment of uncertainty, in a moment of difficulty, whatever that may be. So where do we turn? Why do we turn there? And the thing that we're turning to is the thing that we're turning to actually able to deliver us when we turn to it. These are all questions that David is considering in a time of crisis, and in his crisis, he turns to God. Now again, because we've seen this happen in so many movies before, like that's not completely unexpected. It's not weird that in a moment of crisis, David would turn to God. And certainly because this is, you know, the Bible, uh, we could have called that one, couldn't we? 
Oh, guess what? David turns to God when he's in a time of trouble. But Psalm 17 has much to point, much to redirect, much to reassure us in moments of uncertainty, moments and searches for security, for peace. And perhaps counter or unexpected from what you might have initially thought if you had read Psalm 17 this week or if you were just hearing it uh, for the first time from Jacob just a second ago, Psalm 17 is actually all about God's grace. Not necessarily all about just our righteousness. So we're going to think through this psalm in three parts this evening, highlighting God's grace, the power of God's grace, the love of God's grace, and the transformation of God's grace, the power, love, and transformation of God's grace. So first of all, the power of God's grace. Like like two weeks ago when we were in Psalm 15 together, we have another potentially very confusing psalm. We'll have to thread the needle well to not come to the conclusion that, one, that David thinks he is saved by God or is acceptable before God because of his own works and his own righteousness. But two, on the other hand, that since we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, that then nothing of our lives, nothing of our behavior, nothing of our holiness actually matters to God. Because right off the bat, we jump straight into the theological deep end. Perhaps some very confusing verses If you have a Bible and you don't have it open already to Psalm 17, let's just read these first five verses again. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You've tried my heart. You visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. So this, like, seemingly torpedoes our good Protestant theological categories. It maybe even seemingly torpedoes many of our good biblical categories as well. I'm I'm thinking about Paul, like, all over his letters— But maybe most pointedly in Romans 3, where Paul says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And then David is seemingly just talking about all the good that he's done, all the righteousness that he's done. That's why God should listen to his prayer. Paul is saying, though, there is no one in the world who can claim to be righteous enough to earn their acceptability, to live righteously enough to merit God's favor, his salvation. Apart from the work of Christ by his Spirit, we live our lives not only in utter indifference to the majesty and the worth of God, but often in utter rebellion against God, refusing to live our lives in submission to him. Even our good-motived efforts can become even more sinisterly tinged by pride and by self-worship in the desire for attention, in the desire for praise. Paul's theology is that humanity is a helpless lot, intently committed to sin. All of this bad news setting up the amazing good news of the gospel, the righteousness of God revealed and then applied to sinful humanity through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that you and I might be forgiven, might be redeemed, might be accepted and adopted. But it is Christ's work, not ours. And so, this 
theology in Psalm 17, David's theology of like, my lips are free from deceit, or you have tried me and found nothing, seem to contradict Paul's Romans 3 theology of none is righteous. No, not one. You want to know something crazy, though? Paul didn't just pull those words from Romans 3 out of his own brain, out of his own categories of theology. Paul, in Romans 3, in that section, is quoting straight from the Bible. And not just quoting straight from the Bible, but he's quoting directly from the Psalms. Specifically, Psalms that were all written by David. Huge chunks of Romans 3 come from Psalm 140, Psalm 51, Psalm 5, Psalm 10, Psalm 36. David's words himself. So either Paul and we are lifting one-liners out of context, or Paul and David are actually in perfect theological alignment. And we just need a deeper understanding of both Paul and David's theology. We need a deeper understanding of David, David's theology of Psalm 17. And to do that, maybe another psalm will help us. In Psalm 146, David says this. He says, the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. Okay, so we might read that verse in Psalm 146 and say, okay, the Lord loves the righteous. So after we close our Bibles and leave the building tonight, try really hard this week, everyone. Uh, Don't get drunk. Try not to cuss so much. Come to church next week and avoid all immorality, and God will love you. Well, we actually should try in those areas of our lives. But why? Why? So that God will love us? Well, no. Here's who the righteous are in Psalm 146. Just two verses before David says that the Lord loves the righteous, David says this, Blessed is he whose help is from the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, the God who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Throughout the Old Testament, there is no hint of someone living their life in sinless perfection. That's one aspect that makes the Bible so compelling, that the biblical authors go out of their way to highlight the failures of the heroes. The heroes actually aren't heroes. The heroes and the people of Israel are in constant need of deliverance, constant need of forgiveness. David loves to be near the tabernacle. There is no place that he would rather be. And why? Well, because God is there. But how can David be there too? Because the tabernacle is the place of sacrifice and forgiveness, of mercy and of grace, of peace and acceptance. And so no bones about it, in Psalm 17, David's in some sort of distress. We don't know what, where, or why. And in fact, the grounds on which he is pleading for God to hear and to respond to him is that David has been walking uprightly before God. This feels confusing, but there's actually quite a bit of biblical teaching to reinforce this. In 1 Peter 3, Peter tells husbands that their prayers might actually be hindered if they are not living with their wives in an understanding way and showing them honor. In James 5, James tells the church to confess their sins to one another, to pray for each other that they may be healed. In this, James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. So unlike a person who just perhaps pops in with a request in the moment of crisis or danger, David has been walking with the Lord. 
for his entire life. He isn't showing God his spiritual resume here in these first five verses of Psalm 17 to like try to cajole God into something that he wouldn't have otherwise done. I don't know, like, like God is some mob boss and David is like appearing before the, the Godfather or something with a, a resume of how he's been like this faithful mafia lieutenant on the streets his whole life. And now David has a big favor for the boss that he's finally calling in. And it's going to cost the boss something, but, you know, because of your loyalty to the family, David, you owned it, right? It's not, this is not what's happening. He's not saying, because of your faithfulness now, God, give me what I want because of what I've earned. Not at all. Why does God, or why does David love God in the first place? Why does David follow him and trust him and obey him? Why has he lived uprightly before God and before the people of Israel at all? Because the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping faithful, steadfast love to generations. This is the God who David loves and follows. David is not sinless but he is righteous. And what do we mean by that? What is righteous? Well, that he lives in covenant with God through faith. Through the shedding of blood and the ongoing forgiveness of sins. Living, dwelling, walking with God is the overriding passion and direction of his life. Of course, failing often spectacularly. As we already have talked about this evening, the seduction, the perhaps no euphemisms about it, the, the rape of Bathsheba, the murder of her husband Uriah, all of this making the news this week of like this week in evangelical scandal appear like a Disney cartoon. Perhaps you've seen news headlines this week, but unlike the, the justifying, blame-shifting, minimizing apologies that have come from PR firms in the news this week, David is utterly broken in his sin in Psalm 51. And unlike the way that we often use broken, like something that happens to us, like I have a broken arm or something, David in Psalm 50, 51 that we confessed from earlier fully owns his moral agency, fully owns his culpability, his intentional wickedness against God first and foremost, and then the horizontal consequences and fallout. And so while marked by failing, often spectacularly, no human will certainly ever cease to not be a sinner. The righteous are living in the power of God's grace. Or as one author puts it, they are on a basic trajectory of obedience because of who God is and what he has done. And living in covenantal love and relationship with God, David, in a place of danger and in distress, has faith that God will answer. In the moment of distress, he doesn't turn to his armies, he doesn't turn to his money, he doesn't turn to his charm. He throws himself on the power of God's grace. So having considered the power of God's grace, now secondly, let's turn, let's turn the diamond a bit and peer uh, a bit differently at David's faith in the certain answering of God from a different perspective. Not only the power of God's grace, but the love of God's grace. 
And I'm not necessarily meaning loving God's grace, but the love that God's grace offers and gives. In verse 1, David said, hear a just cause, O Lord, attend my cry. But now, beginning in verse 6, he goes on. He says, I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. David is almost assuredly asking for some kind of physical deliverance here which makes his choice of words in verse 7 pretty attention-grabbing. He says, wondrously show your steadfast love. I think, I don't know, if I received like a cancer diagnosis, or if one of my kids was being rushed into an operating room, I think my first prayer would be, wondrously show your power. Wondrously show your glory, your might over sickness and death. Wondrously show your provision to give this thing or to provide these finances that I so desperately need. But David asks God in protecting him from his enemies to show his love. I've been reading and studying a lot of uh, English Puritans from the 15 and 1600s lately, and there was some difference often amongst them, in their theological approach to their understanding of God's sovereignty in salvation. There was often a difference in emphasis. Stay with me on this for just a second. Was sovereign, this word, was, is it, was it a supporting adjective of something else? Or is God's sovereignty, in their mind, God's highest value? In other words, Some of these English Puritans would emphasize God's loving sovereignty, while still others would emphasize God's sovereign love. Do you see the difference? God's loving sovereignty or God's sovereign love. Was it his love that accompanied his sovereignty as his highest value, his being almighty and powerful, or was his all might and powerful sovereignty actually supporting who he more in his character was, his love. Which of these do you think you are more drawn toward in worship? The love of God or the power of God? God's loving sovereignty or his sovereign love? Now, of course, many of these Bible-loving, God-loving Puritans might disagree with me on this, but I am almost certain that David would pick the latter almost every single time. God's sovereign love. It is God's love that David is singing and writing and praying about over and over and over and over throughout the Psalms. That's not to say that he is not also in complete awe. He often worships God's power and his might, but it is God's love that changes him, that transforms him, that actually brings him delight. I could be wrong. Maybe you're in a different chair than I am, but I don't know that power would cultivate or foster delight in me. It might cultivate, it might elicit awe, but I don't know about love. 
It is God's love that changes David. He asks God to keep him as the apple of his eye. Now, a better English word than apple is pupil. Keep me as the pupil of your eye. This is a Hebrew phrase for a valuable or instinctually protective place of vulnerability. Your pupil is a very important part of your body, but it is also unbelievably vulnerable. And so your body has instinctual moves to protect it. When someone is hammering nearby, I I think I figured this out when I was like five years old, maybe even younger, when my dad was like hammering something and I couldn't figure out like why my eyes kept blinking at the same time that the hammer was hitting, but this is your body's way of protecting it from shards that might be flying off towards your eyeball, towards your pupil. When something is flying at you, at your head, you not only lift your hand to protect, to perhaps protect your brain or your head, but also to protect your eye. Think about when you do this. What do you do? You, act, you're, you squint also. Your body is instinctually moving to protect your eye. And David is asking God to do that. Unlike the way that we protect our eyes out of instinct, David is asking for God's protection because of his love. Like a mother bird who cares for her chicks, he says, hide me in the shadow of your wings. David's enemies have completely surrounded him. They are ready to attack and pounce. They have closed their hearts to pity. They are like young and ravenous, hungry lions. Nothing is going to talk them out of their violence. And so David pleads with God to act. He says in verse 13, Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. And again, David grounds his argument in his righteousness and in their wickedness, based on covenantal promises to Abraham of physical and material blessings and of curse on those who live righteous unrighteously. David looks out as, at his enemies who are attacking him for no reason. He is the one who has lived righteously, and he sees their unrighteousness, their utter disregard for the things of God. And David then cries out on those grounds for God to act, to be delivered from the second half of verse 14, to be delivered from the men of the world whose portion is in this life. He says, God, you, you feel, fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. This is strange. This is a strange prayer. But what David is praying is that God would remember that David is satisfied with his inheritance in God. He is satisfied in God alone. All of these others out there, they have wealth, they have children. In God's common grace, even to those who couldn't give a rip about God, God's enemies might often have so much. But all of that stuff is actually what they care about most. And so there are two kinds of people in the Psalm 17 prayer world. The wicked, whose portion is the world, or in Jesus's language, they are building bigger and bigger storehouses to gather and accumulate more stuff, more security, more experiences. The wicked or the righteous, whose portion is God. God is enough. The love of God is enough. Now, David is absolutely bringing real and practical requests to God here. He wants and expects God to act and physically deliver him. But we also know from elsewhere, like Psalm 73, that even if God doesn't, that's okay. 
Even if David dies, my, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my, the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's enough. Because here's the deal with all of this. In the new covenant of Christ, the, the covenant that Jesus Christ has come to open and offer to all who would believe and trust in his grace, this is the means for you and I to know and to walk with God. It is the means by which we experience and know grace and peace and life and love. While God covenanted himself for a time with a physical people, with physical protection, and with physical blessing, this new and better covenant with God through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus accomplishes now spiritual blessing, spiritual protection. And so it's good and right for you to actually pray prayers with specific requests. Paul tells you to do this. Jesus tells you to do this to pray for specific and even physical needs. And yet, David Pallison, who died last year of cancer, last June, died of cancer, he wonderfully suggests for us how to respond to the question of when someone asks you, how may I pray for you? Hey, what can I pray for in your life these days? He suggests a way that goes beyond the expected or the physical. David, how can we pray for you? He might, we might expect David to answer, well, pray for my cancer. Pray for wise and good doctors and effective medication. Pray for finances. But no, he says, well, I've, I've had a lot on my mind lately, and I've been inattentive and irritable to those nearest and dearest to me. Please pray for me that I will awaken and turn from my preoccupation with work pressures, recreations, health problems, or money. God promises to help me pay attention to him. Ask me, or ask him to help me remember and focus. Ask him to help me to take my family and other people to heart. Pray that I will take refuge in him when the pressure is on. The Lord is my refuge, but I have been taking refuge in TV and in food. That's a prayer. And so I want to just encourage us and challenge us as we're perhaps going around in our gospel community small groups as we're asking for prayer requests, certainly bring these specific requests of sickness and for healing to one another that we might pray in earnest for these things, but pray that we might be actually finding our refuge in the Lord. That through these circumstances, we might be finding greater delight in God. Because the wonder of God and his movement toward you and toward me is not just power, it is love. It is delight today amidst the uncertainty. And as we thought about yesterday in the singleness seminar, the key to contentment as a single person is not being content in singleness. It's being content in Christ as a single person. The key to, commitment, to contentment as a cancer patient as someone who is unemployed, is not to be content in cancer or to be content in unemployment, but it is to be content in Christ as a cancer patient or as an unemployed person. Christ is enough because his love is enough. But how is all this possible? Well, lastly, in verse 15, not only through the power and the love of God's grace, but the transformation of God's grace. Like last week in Psalm 16, and in Psalm 15, the week before that, Jesus Christ, Jesus 
Messiah, the royal son of David, becomes the Psalm 17 man that then extends to his people. Like David before him, Jesus pleads with the Father that we too might become the apple, might become the the pupil of his eye. But as one commentator puts it, whereas David prays, deliver me from my enemies because of your faithful covenant-keeping love, Jesus' prayer of action becomes, deliver me over to my enemies and fulfill your covenant-keeping love. He is delivered over to enemies that we might become his friends. And it's to this work of righteousness, this appearance of glory that David expectantly longs for in verse 15. The last verse of Psalm 17, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This right here, we might say, is almost the entire trajectory of the Bible. God's people dwelling with him, beholding him in praise and in love, being eternally satisfied by his beauty. John in 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The power and the love of God's grace has made us his accepted, his righteous, his protected children. But there is more to come and there is better to come. And not just like, all the stuff that you've ever wanted will finally come true in heaven or something. All of the things that you will have wanted and or prayed for, God will now bestow on you like this heavenly vending machine. No, but the complete and utter transformation of sin to sinlessness, of false or incomplete worship to full worship. Why? Well, because the glory and the beauty of Jesus eclipses it all. And when we see him as he is, we will no longer be tempted toward these lesser gods. Beholding Jesus and then becoming like him, it isn't trite or overselling to say this. Beholding Jesus and becoming like him, for those who are trusting in him today, it is our destiny to become like him for eternity. Quoting one pastor, we must ponder what John Piper calls the most critical question of our generation. That is, whether we'd be satisfied in heaven if Jesus were not there. Would you be satisfied in the idea or the presence of heaven if Jesus were not there? If all the bells and whistles of this life were present, if all of our friends and favorite foods and fun activities, but no Jesus, would we be okay with that? The prayer of Psalm 17, of turning to God for help in trouble, of knowing and experiencing the power, the love, and the complete and utter transformation of God's grace, of Jesus as our only hope, treasure, and pleasure, is what transforms us. Where is your hope? And what do you find yourself most turning to in times of confusion? in times of distress, in times of loneliness these days? Where do you find yourself turning to? Either 
explicitly in the things that you're saying or praying, or even more implicitly in just the way that you spend your time and the way that you, or the, the areas that you are giving your thought life to. Turn to Christ instead. Not because he demands it, but because he will satisfy it. He will satisfy and actually be deliver or be able to deliver in the things that you want from him. His sovereign love is both able to deliver and transform us until he appears. Next week, in Acts 1, the disciples will see the resurrected Christ and his ascension to heaven. I think the ascension is one of our most minimized and underthought-about doctrines in the whole Bible. So we've got a lot to prepare for and think through and a lot to worship in next week. Let's go from this place now and preparing for Acts 1, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And now this week, trusting in him all the more that we might become and be the pupil of his eye, that which he protects and loves. Our Father, we do pray. We pray to you, not just as people, uh, some of us who give you no ounce of thought throughout the week, but then come to you in places of distress, but we come to you as people who love you and people who delight in you as people who come not just to have the requests of our life uh, answered like some sort of vending machine, like giving us the things that we need and we want because we need them and want them, but Father, we come to you as a good Father, trusting that you will actually give us what we do need, even more than what we think we need. We trust in your power. We trust in your love. You are love, and we pray that we might know it. We pray that we might revel in it. We pray that we might respond to you in your love, out of love for you. We love you because you have first loved us. Help us to even more deeply trust and experience and know what it is to, to say and to uh, write and to read that you are love and that you have loved us in Christ. Even so we pray, come Lord Jesus, that we might see and behold and be made new into your image. We pray all these things in your name and to that end. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.